This is the game that moves as you play. X. Hello, and welcome to Brett Easton. Hell yes! I'm your host, Katie Wright, and each week I, along with a guest, take a deep dive into one of the works of former literary it boy, voice of Generation X, and frequent controversial figure, Brett Easton Ellis. And I'm very excited about my guest for this episode because he is not only a, a fantastic lawyer and lover of literature, uh, but my my own brother, Sean Wright. Hello, Sean. Hi, Katie. How are you doing? Good. Um, How are you? I'm good. I'm. You're the only member of our family who listens to my podcasts, and so I'm very. I think it's very appropriate that you're the only member of our family uh, to now to appear on one of my podcasts. Yeah, I think I'm probably the only member of our family who would make sense to be on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, you you and me are the big readers, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the rest of them are illiterate swine. <laughs> uh, and this is your first podcast ever, right? This is, yes. Long-time listener to podcast. <laughs> First time podcaster. Well, welcome. I think I think you're gonna find if you're anything like me that you develop a taste for it and that you can, <laughs> <laughs> can never stop. The, that just that sweet sound of your own voice coming out of your phone is intoxicating. <laughs> uh, so, Sean, we are talking about less than zero. Yes. Um, but before we get into that, I want to ask you, uh, what was your history with Brett Easton Ellis like before uh, before you read Less Than Zero for this podcast? Uh, I had very little history with Brett Easton Ellis. Um, I saw Less Than Zero, the movie, um, a couple of years after it came out. Um, I think I saw it probably around 1991 at a friend's house. He was like, he had it on VHS. He was like, I love this movie. And uh, I watched it. I thought it was pretty edgy at the time. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that's funny now. That's funny uh, to hear. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, uh, like, somewhere probably around um, the early 2000s, I saw uh, American Psycho, the movie. Um I liked it quite a bit, but I had never read anything by Brett Easton Ellis um, until you recently approached me about being on this podcast, and I kind of explained to you that like I've had a history of not wanting to read um, sort of literary it boys from around my generation, um, possibly a little uh, jealousy at work, um, and uh, I'm a fan of david foster wallace but i had never read anything by him um until shortly after he passed away and it was strange because as soon as he died i was like i felt this terrible remorse about never having read anything by him mm. and i started reading him and became a big fan so I, and i i heard a little bit as i became a fan of wallace's writing i heard a little bit about brett easton ellis you know he david Foster Wallace would drop the odd reference to him in some of his essays, and I read a little bit about uh, sort of bad blood between the two of them, and I considered reading Brett Easton Ellis many times over the years, and every time I'd pick up one of his books, I would kind of like shrink away from it, kind of just, 
I would feel a certain uh, disinterest and disdain and <laughs> just wouldn't wouldn't follow through on it and uh, uh, this uh, I, I uh, the first thing that I the first book of his that I sort of consumed uh, based on your uh, saying it was I believe you said it was your favorite of his books was uh, um, Lunar Park I cannot uh, I cannot confirm or deny that at this time okay. <laughs> I, I listened to that on Audible while I was making my drives back and forth from uh, New Jersey to New York and um, I kind of, and also while I was watching my son and doing other things and I really did not consume it very thoroughly. Um, I felt like I missed a lot. Um, and having now read Less Than Zero, I feel like he is an author who, at the very least, uh, his books probably deserve a careful read. And um, I, I'm thinking that I will, uh, instead of listening to that again on Audible, I'll read it uh, later. Um, because I also realized after I started listening to it that it was probably the worst choice I could have made for a first book because it's so meta and so much about his other books and about, uh, you know, it's faux autobiographical or whatever. Anyway, I won't go too much into it and trop all over your, your other uh, episodes, but, but like, uh, yeah, I think, I think less than zero is his first book and it would probably have been a good place for me to start. Uh, and I'm really excited to talk about it with you. Cool. That's that is valuable feedback for me because it's always hard for me to know um, like what to recommend because I recommend a lot of I recommend a lot of people start reading Brady Stanellis. Um And yeah, I, I do have a special uh, soft spot for Lunar Park. Um, and I it is very meta, but I, I'm I've kind of been like well maybe it works like you can watch adaptation without knowing anything about Charlie Kaufman and without having watched being John Malkovich and it still works so like maybe it still works as his own but okay so it's good to know yeah I think it still works but I also think it probably I think probably being real steeped in all of his writing that led up to it probably gives that book the its best shake you know like, that's definitely you, true you can probably like uh, appreciate it more yeah that that's way. that is definitely true but it's like I you know I don't want to be like I recommend you read these three novels so that you can then read this one that I really wanted to recommend to you <laughs> like it's yeah. a tough it's a tough call <laughs> okay um so you know you mentioned before to me that that you never really read the literary it boys of generation x and I was like shocked when you told me that first because I so strongly associate you with David Foster Wallace and I didn't realize like how late you came to David Foster Wallace um is he would he would you say he's your favorite writer he's I feel like he's the one you talk about the most and not necessarily he's up there for me I'm also I'm a huge fan of uh um Ishiguro mm, yeah and uh I've yeah I've got a lot of I got a lot of different um, authors like I think another living author who is living but I think probably more or less retired that I'm a big fan of is Cormac McCarthy mm. um, it should also be divulged to the audience that you have a tattoo of Ernest Hemingway's face on your bicep yes which was done 
partially in jest uh, when I was in my 20s. Um, and I was like, oh, this is like a very funny thing because it's like I'm being macho and getting a tattoo, but it's of uh, a writer, so that's, you know, not the most macho thing, but it's a writer who thought he was super macho, so, <laughs> and, and, like, that I, I sort of identified with because of, like, the, the terse masculinity of his writing, but but then nobody else would see it that way, and uh, so I was like, oh, it's a, that's a really cool thing to have, and then I'm like, you know, 20 years later, <laughs> I'm, I'm stuck with this tattoo, and like, yeah, maybe it wasn't the hottest idea. But <laughs> I think it's a, and it was done more or less like at the prodding of a friend who paid for half of the tattoo for my twenty seventh birthday. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I feel like I feel like it's that tattoo says something about me that uh, I don't think is really true about me. And I, which I was, I, I went through a phase like in my late teens, early twenties where I, I was very heavily into Ernest Hemingway and, and like he was my favorite and they're all, but um, it doesn't really hold true today all right. so much. Although I still do enjoy a lot of his work. Um, oh, but so I wanted to say um, that I was so surprised that you didn't read the literary It Boys of Generation X because that's like the bulk of what I read. Um, <laughs> like I'm obviously obsessed with Brett Easton Ellis. Um, Douglas Copeland is maybe my favorite writer. I love Jonathan Franzen. I read Jay McInerney. You got me into David Foster Wallace. I still haven't finished Infinite Jest, but someday. Um, but I love his essays. Um, I, Chuck Klosterman is like one of my favorite essayists. I think he's also Gen X. I think he's about your age. Um, yeah, so that's like all I read. Um, uh, yeah, I probably touched those guys. <laughs> but then I realized like, like, oh, but I don't, like, I can't name a millennial author. Like, I'm the same as you. I don't read, I'm not reading anybody my age. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know, maybe, maybe Chimamanda. You guys is competition. They're too old. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They could be my father. Um, <laughs> I think maybe Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie might be a millennial. I don't know exactly how old she is, but she's like, the only one I can even think of, like yeah. <laughs> writers just seem old. I, I feel like I feel like maybe the kind of literary it boy, literary it girl was thing was like a thing of the eighties and it, right. or and maybe nineties and isn't around right. really now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like uh, the last really like big um, literary it girl I can think of is Zadie Smith. Like, okay, around around like. 99 2000 that she blew up with white teeth yeah uh that's the that's the last one i can think of where i was like oh this is a brand new young person who just wrote a book that's on everybody's lips right now yeah the other ones that i can think of are just like actors and and stuff who like write comedic memoirs or whatever like mindy kaling or like lena dunham right yeah, it's like, it's not like there aren't still young people publishing books, but like, I, I can't think anybody since probably Zadie Smith, who's like really blown up and been an it author, you know, like the new hotness or whatever that <laughs> everybody is talking about. Yeah. You know, somebody in their 20s with their first novel out. Yeah. Yeah, it's not really, uh, it's not as much of a thing now. Maybe it was, like, unique to the cultural moment of the 80s. I'm not sure. I don't know. I think maybe it was, I, I think it was a phenomenon that had existed 
for a long time. And it's something that's been sort of, I feel like it, had, you know, like Ernest Hemingway was that way. Uh, oh, yeah. I was, I always forget um, that these, I always forget that these authors of like the classics yeah, so were funny. like 22. Because exactly <laughs> they're so old. Yeah. Salinger, I mean, Salinger too, like right? Poets like John Keats and, right. you know, he was dead at like, what, 24 or something? <laughs> oh, God, was he? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. And, and like he was already like this, you know, uh, major poet by the by the time of his death. So, yeah, I feel like it's something that's that's uh, that maybe existed for millennia and, <laughs> and somehow like you know started dying out. Yeah. In, in recent years. Yeah, which is maybe not such a bad thing. Like. <laughs> that like the culture isn't like dying to hear like a twenty a twenty one year old's like takes on the meaning of life. Yeah. Um, also, I think the novel is fading in importance in general. Yeah, you know? I yeah, or it becoming more niche at least. Like right. there's it's, definitely it's still, still culturally. Well, not I'm not gonna say no, but there's there's fewer like culturally significant touchstone. Uh, novels being published yeah i i definitely think so i work at a like oh you you know where were you on the day this book dropped (laughs) (laughs) yeah i work at a used bookstore that has like a a limited stock of books um and the books that people like ask us for again and again and again that we don't have in stock are mostly like self-help books or like Mm -hmm. michelle obama's memoir or like um business planning to read oh yeah you love the obamas (laughs) they're too conservative for me but we'll get into that on a different podcast Um, okay, well, you said you said you're excited to talk about this book, so let's not put it off any longer. Right. Um, so, less than zero. This is this is the novel of the MTV generation. Some some critics said at some point. Um, and you're of the MTV generation yourself. You're only a couple years younger than Brady Stanellis. Yes, about seven years younger. Seven years younger. Okay. So you were like, uh, I don't know, what, 14 probably when this book came out? Yes, around that. So do you... It came out in 85, which is the year I turned 14. Okay. Halfway through the year. Okay, cool. So uh, do you feel feel like this book captured the experience of being a young person in the 80s? Well, in a lot of ways, yes. Hmm. Um, Although I grew up rural... Um, and in a uh, very different sort of family setting, economic setting, and everything else. But um, it did bring a lot of memories back for me. Um, And also, uh, you know, made me think of um, friends I had in the 80s um, who uh, maybe I thought uh, would have uh fit in more uh in the environment uh described than i would have necessarily but i also without um uh i don't want to jump ahead too far but i i really kind of identified with the character of clay a lot more than i expected to Hmm. Um, and i keep reading everybody says he's such an unsympathetic character he's a monster he's horrible but I don't know. I have a, I have a little different take on on that than that I'll get into later. But uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm curious. What 
Now, you are uh, somebody who was born um, several years after the events described uh, in this book um, take place. Uh, what drew you to this book? Um, so what drew me to this book was uh, I, ha- I read American Psycho in college. Uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna spoil my opinions on American Psycho, but like, I, I wasn't that into, um, but, but for some reason that I could not really explain, despite not liking American Psycho, I still felt like driven to seek out more Brady Stanellis. Um, and then that, that girl who had been, who, who had suggested American Psycho said that Less Than Zero was a good, next one to read um because I think she said it had been the first one she read and I I, so I read it in college I went to college a little bit late so I was like 22 maybe reading it um and I loved it I like it blew me away with like the beautiful yet brutal like prose style like I was I was really like like I heard I heard somebody call it like and I I'm saying I heard somebody but I know that it's a critic that Brett quotes in Lunar Park <laughs> describing it as like similar to haiku and like that was re- that really resonated with me like it really felt like that um and and um and like you know uh that that kind of feeling I I sort of also identified with Clay even though he's like sort of a complete blank slate like like sometimes you are (laughs) there's sometimes or sometimes you feel like you have like no agency um and you witness horrible things and you don't do anything about it and you kind of think you kind of think to yourself like I could be doing something right now but I'm just not gonna um and that really resonated with me at the time that I read it and I was like I cannot believe that this author is like or that when this was written this author was like two years younger than I am now like holy shit what a genius and I will say that now going back and rereading it uh at age 29 I was like this okay this was written by a child (laughs) like a precocious child but like uh I can I can kind of I can definitely kind of like see the seams more now um but yeah, when I I, I guess I, I read it at the right time and it hit me hard then. But yeah, so you're yeah. Re- you're reading this um, for the first time at um, I I won't I won't say I won't say your age. Okay, yes, the tenor age of forty seven. So I'm curious, um, how did you feel that same way? Did you feel like oh I can tell that like this is an immature author? Um, you know it's funny. I did as I was reading it. And after I completed, I, I had thought about it and started like going through the book a little more. I went back through the book a little more carefully. And I was like, like one thing I was like, it's a little distracting all his constant, like, uh, cultural references, mm-hmm. like song, 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 uh, movie, movie, song, you know, like mm-hmm. just over and over. Um, but then I started like, and then, you know, he'd be, he's quoting lyrics, which is something that I generally am not a fan of. Yeah. When like, you know, it's something I've seen in like Stephen King novels and stuff like that, where it's all like, uh, you know, 
something bad's going to happen. And so there's a few uh, bars of bad moon on the rise get ported or something like that, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's like to me, it's like sort of they want to like get that song playing in your head a little bit to try to like set the mood and set the tone a little bit. And to me, it feels like just sort of a weak cinematic gesture, you know, like, yeah. like oh, you know, yeah, here's the soundtrack for what's going on. That's a, you know, I feel like that is a general rule. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt that way a lot as I was reading this book. Um, and, you know, I don't think it's a perfect book. I don't think it's perfectly executed. I think if you were a little older, there's some things you would do differently. But I, uh, something I did to try to, like, that, that I wouldn't ordinarily do, but ended up, I felt like, paying a lot of dividends in terms of the book opening up for me was like uh, I started I went through and started uh, making a list of all the different um, references to songs Hmm. and uh, and bands and things and then like there was a lot of bands and songs referred to that I was like is this a real thing or not did he make it up so I started googling them and it just led me down this uh, (laughs) rabbit hole of like early 80s like new wave and hardcore LA punk and stuff like that. And I realized that like there were all these subtle references to these like local LA bands in there that I hadn't picked up the first time through. And like that actually like if he's satirizing anything, like the main thing he's satirizing is the LA punk rock, hardcore punk scene. Hmm. Um, And it was like, I was like, whoa, he's, and it's, I was like, and he did it with a lot of subtlety and restraint. And I was like, wow, this, this guy, you know, cause I kind of maybe was reading it with a bit of a chip on my shoulder. Like, yeah, whatever. He's, tw- he was 20 years old and like, whatever. But like, actually when I, once I like dug in a little bit and I realized sort of the frame of what he was doing, I was like, wow, this is somebody, this was somebody who like actually had something kind of important to say here and like did it with a lot of like, I think, I think a lot of courage and a lot of restraint. And I was really impressed, you know, when I, once I had fully, like, once I fully like digested and understood what he'd written, you know, cause I, I like read this. I just, I just finished reading this last week. Um, and I just, I, I've done so much like, digging and research mostly more into like primary sources than uh than any sort of like literary criticism or anything um and uh yeah that's that's something i wanted to really get into in this podcast that's so funny i have like for all of my brad easton obsession i've never looked up any of the any of the songs that he references. I've never even heard the song Less Than Zero uh, or the song that has, I can't even remember if that's the title of the song or just a lyric in the song. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, Less Than Zero is the title okay, of the yeah. song. Yeah, I haven't even heard that song. Um, and I know you want to talk more about the music, but before we dive into that, so you, you said um, he has something important to say. Um, so can you articulate for me what, what you think he's saying that is important? 
Well, okay, so Less Than Zero was a huge window into that. Um, uh, first the song, and then there's like, as I was going back through a, the book, I realized he keep like, right away, in the, so Less Than Zero, I didn't realize that was a reference to an Elvis Costello song when I was reading the book. Mm. And I didn't even realize it until, so basically what happened was, I was listing all of his cultural references, and I started doing research on a lot of them. Um, and Elvis Costello is somebody I was never that big of a fan of, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm aware of his mu music, but it's always been, I've always found it to be, like, a little too jokey sounding for my taste. Mm -hmm. um, and it was funny, because, like, yeah, anyway, so that, actually, that's, I was about to run ahead of myself, but, like, I'm not, I, have, I wasn't a big fan of Elvis Costello, but I noticed that in the book, he kept referencing Elvis Costello periodically. He had an Elvis Costello poster in his bedroom. Um, and if he kept talking about Elvis Costello had these glasses on, one blue lens, one red lens. Uh, and he was like trying to avoid Elvis Costello's gaze. Uh, he, it was like he felt like he was being judged by Elvis Costello or he was ashamed <laughs> to be seen Elvis Costello. Yeah. Uh, and it would come up periodically throughout the book. And then there's a scene in his, uh, near closer to the end, not way to the end, but like fairly far along in the book, where he's in his psychiatrist's office, and the psychiatrist has a poster of Elvis Costello, and it's a framed cover of Rolling Stone magazine uh, that says, Elvis Costello repents. Hmm. And I was like, is that a real article? Or not. So I, I Google that. I'm like, Elvis Costello repents Rolling Stone magazine. And sure enough, there it is. It, it pops up. I can see the cover and everything. There's an article with uh, an interview with Rolling Stone. Elvis Costello had just done like a show in Los Angeles that summer. Uh, like, and it, he hadn't done a, uh, a, he hadn't done an interview in like seven years. At this, at this point, he's like, uh, He's like seven years into his career. He'd given like interviews at the very beginning of his career, refused to give any interviews after that. Uh, and he sits down for this interview with Rolling Stone. And I'm curious, okay, what's he repenting for? So I start reading the article. And as I'm reading down, there gets, it gets to a part where they start talking about the song Less Than Zero. And that's the first time I realized that Less Than Zero was an Elvis Costello song. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's where I was like, and I was like, oh, crap. He, he had this clue buried right here in the middle of his story about what he's talking about. So I'm like, okay, well, what's, Less than, what's, what's Elvis Costello have to say about his song Less And uh, actually, this is, I told you before, I had a, I had a couple of little things I wanted to read. Mm -hmm. uh, this, uh, Elvis Costello's, uh, remarks about the song Less Than Zero in this interview is among those things. Actually, hold that thought. Yeah. Sure. Uh, we're going to break for commercial and okay, we great. can hear Elvis Costello's remarks when we get back. Oh, perfect cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. I'm Tom Lockney. And I'm Liam Sr. I really like video games and internet culture. And I like movies and TV. And every week we research a true story from our preferred mediums and tell it to the other person. It's super fun and it's great. And even when it gets a little intense, we find the last in it, damn it. Lots of learning, lots of laughter, sometimes bummers, but lots of friendship. Media Majors, every Monday on the Major Cast Network.
Okay, Sean. So you're about to read us uh, an excerpt from the Elvis Costello Repents interview, right? Yes. All right. You. Uh, the uh, Rolling Stone uh, reporter asks, uh, your first single was Less Than Zero. When did you write that? Um, and uh, Elvis Costello responds, earlier in the year, I saw a program with Oswald Mosley, the leader of the British fascist movement of the 30s. And there he was on TV saying, no, I'm not anti-Semitic. Of course I'm not. It doesn't matter even if I was. His attitude was that time could make it all, all, all right. It was a very English way of accepting things that used to really irritate me, really annoy me. The complacency, the moral complacency there, that they would just accept this vicious old man, not string him up on the spot. And then the author, I I think this is probably like some sort of condensation of other things that he said, uh, because it's in bold. Mm -hmm. Um, It says, this was the time when the National Front and the British movement were recruiting with great success. And they, of course, derived directly from Mosley's old British Union of Fascists. They were the same old bastards, the same old weirdos like Colin Jordan. They kept reappearing and denying they had any fascist overtones. And then, and then there would be pictures taken of them dressing up in pervy Hitler youth uniforms. They're really sick people. If there wasn't a danger that some people of limited intelligence would take them seriously, they'd be sad and you'd feel sorry for them. But you can't. There are people gullible enough and there are enough problems the same way as you've got here. You can point fingers and say, these are the people who are the source of all your problems. It's the black people. It's the same as saying it's the Jews. Um, so yeah, so that's the, that's what he had to say. Wow. Basically (laughs) about, about less than zero in this article that Ellis more or less flags in that scene. (laughs) Wow. And it's like, and then when, you know, when I read that, I'm realizing there's a ton of like sort of fascist signaling in the book. Oh, interesting. Um, That's not something I noticed. Yeah, it's, it jumps out at you once you like start looking for it. Um, right away when he meets up with the, he's at the party and Frank's there. Um, let's see. Uh, this is like on uh, page uh, five. Uh, Like, Clay is introducing Trent to Daniel, um, and uh, Trent asks Daniel where he goes to school, and Daniel says, with Clay, where do you go? And uh, Trent says, UCLA, or as the Orientals like to call it, UCRA. Trent imitates an old Japanese man, eyes slit, head bowed, front teeth stuck out in parody, and then laughs drunkenly. I go to the University of Spoiled Children, Blair says, still grinning, running her fingers through her long blonde hair. Where, asks Daniel. USC, she says. Oh, yeah, he says, that's right. Blair and Trent laugh, and she grabs his arm to balance herself for a moment. Or USC, she says, almost gasping. Or UCLA, Trent says, still laughing. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, yeah, that's uh, for and sure. <laughs> that's, not the, that's not the last of those kind of things. Like, there's, uh, which one is it, Kim? Who moves into a new house. Oh, that's right, with the Nazi planters. There's right, Nazi pots, <laughs> Nazi pots yeah. 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 Right, and then, duh. And then there's like, <laughs> these guys are at a show, and they're like, they're like, oh, fucking Mexicans here, uh, kill them all, you know, mm. pushing a guy around, you know. Uh, they like, there's a scene where like, um, they're talking about this guy, Raul, mm-hmm. um, and they're like, oh, he would, this one girl went out with him for a while cause she thought it was cool to go out with a black guy and like, uh, one of them was like, oh, what a disgusting skis or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just a lot of this sort of like, uh, and like where they're like belittling one girl cause she thought a guy who worked at a gas station was cute. Yeah. And there's all, all this stuff signaling of like this, like, uh, sort of like deep racism and and uh, classism uh, almost and classism anti-semitism uh, and then there's also like I also like just based on other things I've read um, like stuff by Pynchon stuff like you know books uh, like Gravity's Rainbow um, all the sexual depravity yeah. I also like associate very heavily with fascism. Hmm. Um that features a lot in like in uh Pynchon's writing. Okay. Um and uh It is it's yeah, in, so it's interesting to me that there's like there's yeah, definitely there's clearly pervasive racism throughout the book and classism. Um uh it's it's weird to me that there isn't also homophobia though. This seems actually there is from a lot of it. Fr- okay, from who? Because it seems it seems to me like the characters in this book are feel like in in terms of like queer acceptance like way ahead of what I would expect from those people at that time. Like actually, everybody's fucking every gender and nobody cares. Right. But I don't think that's actually the case. There's like different, like they're like everybody, like you take Rip, Trent, um, all these guys, they're all engaged in some kind of like, uh, uh, sort of uh, homosexual type sex. Mm-hmm. Um, to use like, not necessarily the most preferred way to talk about it, but I think in this case, it kind of makes sense um, because it's not it's not based upon um, their uh, identity as someone who loves other men. They don't love anybody. Yeah. But they are indiscriminate in using other people's bodies. And I think that somebody like Rip is like he likes to he's like you know i take and use other people's bodies period yeah and it's like and it's always and all these guys that they're having these relations with they always describe them as like these young boys yeah 15 and it's like it's all about like you know they just dominate and take and despoil and whatever you know that's i don't think it's i don't think it's a progressive progressiveness about sex at all because they're constantly like um like somebody i think it's trent is talking about daniel um 
and he's talking. He keeps saying, "Oh, you know, I, I, the word's going around that he's a, a faggot." Right. Yeah. And he keeps talking about that, and it's like Trent obviously is like, whatever. You know, he'll get, he'll do whatever. Yeah. Not, he sleeps with Clay mind. in the course I mean, of this what? book, right? <laughs> no. No, Griffin does. Oh, okay. It's so hard to keep the characters in this book the straight. Only, yeah, the, <laughs> the only guy who uh, Clay sleeps with in the course of this story is Griffin. Okay. Um, but okay, but Clay says with a lot of other guys. Okay. In if, the past. Clay, does Clay is Trent the one that Clay at some point says like I might have slept with him at some point? I can't remember. No, that's Raul. <laughs> right, that's Raul. Okay. But then, but then, but like, then it turns out it wasn't. He knows it wasn't him because he's black. Because he's black. <laughs> yeah. And then they say, because then they bring up that he's black and he's, and then in his, he just kind of like, as a piece of interior monologue says, I never slept with Raul <laughs> right after they divulge that he's black. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's a lot of, so there, I think there's this idea among these guys who are like constantly having sex with younger uh, males that there's another kind of of guy who's a faggot who is yeah. somebody who actually loves other men would you know like um, who is who isn't just like using guys for sensation or whatever that they actually care about other men or yeah something, you know right um which i think that's also uh, to me that's a very fascist kind of thing yeah that's fair which is interesting because actually um i was kind of hoping we could listen to a little bit of less than zero the song yeah sure because uh, some of the lyrics to that actually i think uh like fit interestingly with the the uh, things that happen in the book Lesson Zero. Okay, yeah, let's listen to it. Calling Mr. Ozzel with a swastika tattoo There is a vacancy waiting in the English voodoo Carving deep metal on the field to boss head When it's had enough for that maybe Take him to bed to teach him he's alive or he wishes he was dead. Turn up the TV, no one was none will suspect even your mother won't detect it, so your father won't know. They think that I got no respect, but everything means less than zero. So, uh, first of all, I got to say that song is a banger. I really liked that. It, it, that is, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have to listen to more Elvis Costello now. I really haven't heard any of his music. <laughs> yeah, this is, and this is from his first album, 1977. Oh, wow. And it says, so that like the first set of, the first sort of stanza of it is, Calling Mr. Oswald with the swastika tattoo, there is a vacancy waiting in the English voodoo carving V for Vandal on the guilty boy's head. When he's had enough of that, maybe you'll take him to bed hmm. to teach him he's alive before he wishes he was dead. Yeah. Do you um, do you know if that is a reference to any 
to any real event or anything relating to the guy that Elvis Costello I, is singing about? I don't. I haven't dug that deep. But I do feel like, you know, this older man and like, you know, he's a fascist supposed to stand for certain, like, I guess you would say conservative values. But like the suggestion is that like he would be tempted to take a young boy to bed. Yeah. Uh, to teach him a lesson. And I feel like that fits uh, in kind of neatly with a lot of what's going on in the book Lesson Zero. Yeah, it really does. The way that the Elvis Costello poster works is very reminiscent of... Uh, the Eyes of Dr. E.J. Eckelberg? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. In a... In the Great Gatsby. Yes, absolutely. And it's that I feel like that's I feel like Ellis's use of that and his like sort of um, invocation of that is a very smart and subtle way to uh, sort of signal what he's talking about a little bit because. The Great Gatsby is all about people who are sort of lost, empty, hollow, and very wealthy and privileged yeah. at the same time. So it's like, you know, I thought that was a very smart invocation. Um, and, but the fact that he has the, those glasses, like E.J. Eckelberg, like I have, I don't, as far as I know, that the individual wearing the glasses means almost nothing in that it's just the the presence of those all-seeing um glasses right in well in in has, has meaning in the great gatsby there there is no person like it like it was never the painting was never completed it's just disembodied eyes in right, glasses exactly. right but the, in this case the person who's always watching is elvis costello and he points us toward this article where Elvis Costello is making this very specific argument about the risks of like just allowing fascist talk to go unchecked. Yeah. Now that so, makes this book that makes this book feel a lot more relevant than I thought it was. Right. And it, and it actually gets it gets better because and it and like the 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 way into more of it is the through some of the other music referred to. Like, are you familiar with the bands Fear and X? No. They are both referred to a lot in this book. And, like, I kind of missed it at first, but as I was going through and listing, I noticed there's repeated references to Fear and X. And they're both hardcore L.A. punk bands that were, like, hitting it big towards the very late 70s and early 80s. Uh, like, I think, uh, Fear released its first album, like, in 82. Um, they had been around playing for, like, five years and had never released an album. And they released this album. And, like, at the very start of the book, uh, before the book even starts, you know, there's these two pull quotes one is, this is the game that moves as you play. Mm -hmm. And that's a quote from a song by X. And the other is, there's a feeling I get when I look to the West, Led Zeppelin. 
Um, that's from Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> okay. But I'm not. I don't think that one's. I think that one's more like he just liked the way that uh, <laughs> that phrase fit in. I don't think it has as much significant as significance as the X quote. Now, this particular song by X, I listened to it. It's a uh, one of their albums here. I've downloaded a couple of their albums and listened to them a bunch. It's actually very good music. Okay. Um, I was afraid that you were ramping up to them being like a like a skinhead band, but I'm guessing well, You not. know what? Actually, X, not so much, but the other one they reference a lot. And actually, there's two characters in this book who are really references to members of the band Fear. Oh, um, really? There's this character Spit. <laughs> yeah. Which is funny because they in this they're at this party at Kim's new place with the Nazi pots, mm-hmm. and Spit is apparently Kim's boyfriend, um, and they say and they say that Spit is friends with the drummer from Fear. Well, guess what the drummer from Fear's name is? Spit sticks. <laughs> huh. So there's this weird like oh it's not I'm not talking about Spit sticks I'm talking about his friend Spit who's <laughs> at this party, and oh and and by the way. Fear, like they're they're expecting fear to show up at this party, but fear never shows up. Hmm. And then there's references throughout the book to this character who never really shows up, but his name is Durf. Yeah, Durf. Yeah. Durf. And another, like the basis for fear is Durf Scratch. Oh wow! <laughs> okay. And and Durf, the references to Durf are all about oh he's fucking this person or that person. Yeah. And they they talk about Durf like he's actually like a year younger than them. But Durf Scratch was actually older than these characters. So I feel, but I feel like, I don't think it's a coincidence that he named one guy Durf. And Durf is just like, there's a point where like, um, Clay wants to go into a bathroom to do some coke. And Trent's like, oh, don't go in there. Um, Durf, Kim, and Julian are fucking in there. Right. And then there's like all the, like throughout, like here and there, there's like, oh, Durf's fucking this person or Durf's fucking that person person you know yeah um and they're all from uh, both of the, both names are, are people from this band fear and there's lots of references to fear they, fear is not one they ever they never quote a song uh from well they do quote one song from fear but they never reference that it that it's uh, they don't even tell you it's a song um mm. at the very start of the book uh just a couple pages in there's a christmas card that's left for um, for Clay. That's left for Clay by Blair. That says, "Let's fuck uh, Christmas together." <laughs> fuck, fuck Christmas on the outside, and then inside it says, "Let's fuck Christmas together." And I'm like, that doesn't exactly sound. I don't get that exactly, you know? Yeah. I mean, I kind of get it, but it doesn't. It seems a little weird. <laughs> and then, as I'm doing, like, as I'm looking up these bands and learning more about them, I discover. Fear has this record that came out like in 1982. It's called The Record. And one of the tracks on it is Fuck Christmas. <laughs> um, it's like a, obvious to me at that point. It's like, oh, okay. So she thought, you know, it was a, this is meant to be like a little inside joke between them, a reference to a song they both like. And that makes that card make a lot more sense. Yeah. But the song's not well known outside of people who are, you know, big fans that like fear is not well known i may have heard of them in the past um but like i didn't i couldn't remember if they were a real band or not it turned out they have one song 
that I did recognize. And I figured out later that the reason I recognized it was because there was this album I used to have of, uh, of, uh, Soundgarden B-sides mm-hmm. and they did a cover of it on that, that, uh, for some B-side to something else. And I'd heard it on there. Sound and, cover. Uh, wait, Soundgarden did a cover of a fear song? Of a fear song. Okay. And, uh, it's actually like an undeniably catchy song, but also like sort of uh, a little bit like uh, revealing um, about the sort of band they are. Uh, and I think it's well worth a listen if you want to listen to that one too. Yeah, should I listen to it right now? Sure. All right, let's take a listen. So that was I Don't Care About You by Fear. Um, and definitely the lyrics to that song fit fit in with the themes of Less Than Zero in like a <laughs> extremely obvious way, right? <laughs> uh, it fe- like it, this could be a song like about Clay. <laughs> yeah. And did you find it like as undeniably catchy as I did? Yeah, I loved it. It, it's, <laughs> have you listened to any Rites of Spring? It kind of sounded like Rites of Spring to me. Um, I'm, I am not placing Rites of Spring. They're like a 90s post-hardcore band, so I guess they came after Fear. I bet they listened to Fear, probably. Oh. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, yeah, it's catchy in a way that's like still is still clearly not trying to be like commercial. <laughs> <laughs> or at least has that veneer of being not trying to be commercial. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. But fear is like, I think, sort of the apotheosis of something that is troubling Clay and is troubling Ellis that he's writing about here. Because um, I uh, started reading up on this band some Mm -hmm. and like there was a interview with spit sticks and he was saying oh yeah you know like we were just like you know everything was like a joke to us and we were just you know going crazy and you know nobody knew what we were about you know like the the homophobes thought we were homos and the dead Kennedys thought we were fascists and I was like whoa wait a second the dead Kennedys thought you were fascists (laughs) like do you know who? Do you know about the Dead Kennedys at all? I mean, I know of them. I don't know. I don't really know anything about them. Okay. Well, they're not exactly like they are. They are also an LA hardcore punk band, mm-hmm. and they from the same time period. And they are not exactly like humorless, um, humorless stiffs who would be like, oh, you know, you're fascist because you like 
said something tongue in cheek or ironic. Um, okay. And it's like, well, actually, do you think it's too soon to play another song? No, let's do it. What do you want to play? All right. Uh, cue up California Uber Ollies by the Dead Kennedys. Okay. So that leaves that leaves me with some questions. <laughs> so, so like the dead. Well, go ahead. What's your your question? Well, I guess my my first question for you is, what do you know about Jerry Brown, and was he really a hippie slash fascist? <laughs> well, Jerry Brown was governor back then. Okay. You know, he was like Governor Moonbeam. They called him. <laughs> so um, he was like a hippie type. Well, that's what that was the sort of like conservative, you know, because he gotcha. was, like, falling on the heels of, like, Governor Ronald Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, that was the conservative take on him, was, like, he was all for the hippies and whatever. But, uh, yeah, so, like, but you can see they weren't afraid to, like, say some things that might really offend <laughs> some people coming from, you know, like, a lot of different directions, you know? Yeah. Holocaust survivors and stuff. Like, they, they're a little, <laughs> like, uh, glib <laughs> yeah with their uh, with their nazi jokes um yeah you know like um, which i think it's actually a pretty clever song in a lot of ways yeah um, i like it they, i'm still you know, I'm, I'm sure i would like it more if i like had the context of knowing like what there's what specifically they're trying to comment on about jerry brown but i still well, even without the context i still like it i still think it's funny like when you pull up the lyrics and look at them. Yeah, I'm, lo- I'm looking at them now. Yeah, so he said, I am Governor Jerry Brown. My aura smiles and never frowns. Soon I will be president. Carter Power will soon go away. Carter was still president when this song came out. <laughs> I will be fewer one day. <laughs> I will command all of you. Your kids will meditate in school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then Zen fascists will control you. 100% natural. You will jog for the master race and always wear the happy face. Yeah. Close your eyes, can't happen here. Big bro on white horses near. The hippies won't come back, you say. Mellow out or you will pay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The part the part that actually made me laugh out loud was now it is nineteen eighty four, knock knock at your front door. It's the suede denim secret police. They have come for your uncool niece. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a, yeah. That, I, to me, that was the funniest line in the yeah. song, was they have come for your, the, the sweet denim secret police, they have come for your uncle Heath. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I thought that was really clever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they're, like, they're, so they're not, they're hip to the whole ironic uh, yeah. fascism thing or whatever. Right, you know? yeah. Um, okay, so then, so and so then you, lo- you looked into their relationship to fear? 
Well, you know, I didn't find I I did, but I didn't find much. But I found gotcha. an interview with a like a band that's sort of like they're kind of like forebears of the L.A. queer punk movement. Oh, um, called Nervous Gender. Oh, cool. <laughs> I already love them. <laughs> and they were, I, I was reading an interview from them from not too long ago. I mean, sometime in the 2000s, uh, where they were talking to this guy about, like, well, things did start, to, you know, we everything was, you know, we were, nothing was sacred. Everything was like, you know, you say what you want. That was what it was all about. And then they were like, but then there got to be problems where we couldn't really, you know, like, and they're, they're kind of like, talking around something a little bit and they hmm. the interviewer is asking them you know well what are you uh you know what do you mean and the guy's like what one of the people from the band is like okay well here's an example uh we played with fear before and the guy was like yeah i saw that i was really surprised you played with fear <laughs> and they're like well you know it's like they would always shout out stuff about homos and stuff in their songs mm-hmm. and like they were like really cool guys. They were nice guys. You know, we never had a problem with them, but they were all shtick. They were all about shtick constantly. And they, they were all about outrage. And then they said like people, their audience started to become people who were like, you know, it's like yesterday they were like jocks and the next day they were punk. And like skinheads start showing up at their shows all the time. And like they do nothing to like regulate it, you know, they're just like whatever, you know, like. We, you know, fuck everything. That's our motto, you know? <laughs> yeah. Fuck it all. We just do what we want. We say what we want. Um, and they were like, you know, we could, it was like, you know, they were like, they did not, you know, what, like when we tried, they, we were supposed to open for them. They ended up opening for us because they were afraid everybody would leave if we played <laughs> first. And then it's like, you know, they're like, their audience could not, would not like mess with us, you know, they couldn't stand us. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so... It's like, okay, well, there's some trouble in paradise here, you know? And then I'm re- I read an- another interview with uh, Durf Scratch, uh, who's deceased now, but uh, he was like, I got to get all this off of my chest about everything that was going on. And then in the interview, like, there's this maddening portion of the interview where he says something really interesting. And the interviewer, it was a wide open, ranging conversation. He's like, I want to talk about everything. And the interviewer, for whatever reason, doesn't follow up on this. He's like, he was like, yeah, I started, you know, like, I started feeling like maybe I needed to quit anyway. Like, leaving, he's the he's the lead singer for the band. He, like, started carrying, like, Mein Kampf with him <laughs> constantly. <laughs> and he's, like, known to be, like, a conservative guy leaving. And, and like, I'm reading all this stuff about Ving, which there's not, like, that much about him, like, fascism or whatever. But apparently, he was, like, just a money hose. Like, just constantly, like grab, grab, grab as much money as he could. Huh. Um, but like, so like, there's all these indications out there that fear, um, was like kind of opening the door for like fascists. Yeah. And, like, the dead Kennedys, like they felt compelled like a couple of years later to issue this sort of corrective song called, uh, uh, Nazi punks fuck off or something. Oh yeah, that one. That one I'm a little bit familiar with. Yeah. <laughs> that one. Uh, that one had a big like popularity resurgence on Twitter shortly after uh, <laughs> Nazis had a big popularity oh, yeah. resurgence. Yeah. <laughs> but there's like so there's this like atmosphere 
in LA at the time, I think, where there's like this hardcore punk scene, and these are supposed to be like sort of like the cutting edge, like they're the ones who are defying authority and trying to like, you know, throw off the shackles of like this sort of like, you know, this, the fascist conformity of Ronald Reagan and all that <laughs> stuff, you know? Yeah. And they're sort of like opening the door to like this sort of nihilism yeah where it's like everything's you know everything's a jerk off everything's a joke and then like all of a sudden you got like people flood into these shows who are like just actual like meathead nazis yeah and like you sing an ironic song about california uber always and they're like they feel like they're like young Germans in a beer hall in 19, you know, 28 or whatever. <laughs> like, they're like, it, and it's, it like relates back to what, exactly what, uh, you know, uh, Elvis Costello was talking about. Yeah. Which is like, you're just like, you just like let this stuff go and, uh, and like there's people who don't get the joke. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And that's interesting because that's like, I feel like that's something that has happened to Brad Easton Ellis throughout his career. Like, I feel oh, like yeah. he's he's somebody that like, there's a lot of irony. people. Yeah, there's a lot of irony. And there are always people who don't get the joke. Um, and there's well, I mean, there's a lot of irony in. <laughs> not in his writing oh yeah oh yeah there's irony that he's critiquing this thing that also like describes him um but i guess i guess like yeah there's irony but it may or maybe it's also just like self-awareness right that he he knows that this is a, a thing that his like personality and interests lend themselves to and that's like maybe that's why he's so haunted by it and why it's such a something that he has to put so much thought into that he has to write an entire novel about it. Right. Yeah. Well, and there's this, and then like, so reinforcing this notion right before like the very, like the ultimate, you know, horrible scene. Mm-hmm. Um, Are you talking about the like gang rape scene? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, Clay is at an X show with Rip. Oh, he is? Yes. These na- like these band names didn't mean anything to me, so they like right. didn't register. <laughs> when I went back over to start listing all the uh, cultural references, because I was like, it's so distracting the way he's constantly this and that about bands. Yeah. They go. So he goes to um, an X show with Rip. Yeah. So they uh, they get there. They're at the Roxy where X is playing. It's almost midnight. Trent's there. Um, which I, that's something else I noticed, like, you know, there's all these different boys that are kind of hard to distinguish from each other. Mm-hmm. And I was noticing that in particular, like Clay has like, there's three other characters who are very much like doppelgangers for Clay. They're like him, like slightly different variations on him. If he were like a little different uh-huh. in how he was responding to things. And Trent is the one who's most like on the path to being like another rip or a fin. Yeah. Like somebody who's just like absolutely 
loves indulging in everything. Julian is like, if like Clay was like got too caught up in it and became a victim of it so much. Yeah. And uh, Daniel is more like if Clay was like got off on it a little bit more and wanted to like kind of stick around and be more a part of it. He's not like a, more of a, if if if. Clay was a little more of a voyeur, got a little more of a voyeuristic thrill out of what was going on. Yeah. Um, he'd be Daniel, which is, there's like, that's one thing, like one of my favorite pieces of irony in this is when he runs into, he goes to see Daniel. Um, and da- this is after, well, you know what? I'll save that. Okay. For a little bit, but so they're at this show and like, um, Rip is wearing an X shirt. Um, Spin is wearing a T-shirt that reads "Gumby Pokey the Blockheads." Mm-hmm. Um, and like Rip and Spin both have on black five hundred ones. And then Rip comes up to Clay and says, "There are too many fucking Mexicans here, dude." And yeah. Spin snorts and says, "Let's kill them all." Yeah. Um, and then it says Trent must think that is a pretty that this is a pretty good idea because he laughs and nods. Hmm. Uh, and then uh, he said, and then it says, a dark boy with a thin mustache and an under the big black sun. That's one of uh, X's albums. Okay. A t-shirt bumps into me, and Rip grabs his shoulders and pushes him back into the dancing crowd, crowd and shouts, "Fucking spit!" Right after that, it says, "Spins talking to somebody named Ross." Spin turns to Rip after Rip's turned away from the stage. Uh. And it says, listen, Ross has found something in the alley behind Flip. And then that's when he divulges that there's a body back there. Mm-hmm. So they go back, ogle the body, mess with the body for a while. And then that's when... Uh, that's when Rip is like, I've got something back at my place that'll blow your mind. Yeah. So... I feel like it's not an accident that the the like leaping off point for the most horrific scene in the book is an X show. Oh yeah, huh? That's interesting. You know? Yeah. Which X was pretty like X wasn't quite as uh, like I'm listening to their music and stuff and reading about them. They were never as like um questioned as fear about like how they um you know felt about fascism or whatever or being fascist sympathizers or whatever Mm -hmm. but uh the interesting thing is like the very last paragraph uh of the book is all about a song by x oh Um, it is yeah. That's just so another I, thing, like, because it, it like, meant nothing to me. Because he said it was a song called Los Angeles, so the way I figured it out was I basically <laughs> went to Wikipedia and was scrolling down every song called Los Angeles looking <laughs> for one from the right time period that looked like a possibility, and I saw that X had a song called Los Angeles off of their album Los Angeles. Okay. And I was like, well, does it fit in? And, like, sure enough, it does it fit what the description is, and sure enough, it fit to a T. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh... It has lyrics about parents so hungry well, and unfulfilled they ate their own children. Not exactly, but it's like, but he's saying that those images were very personal to him. Oh, gotcha. Like, 
I'm like, yes, I can see how you can kind of like impressionistically like take the kind of image. There's, there are hateful images. Yeah. And there are, I can see how impressionistically you can say, yes, I could, that would arise from this song. Yeah. But uh, I was so like, um, yeah, I think this is another song that's definitely, like, I feel like this song and, um, and the song uh, Less Than Zero are the two main, the, the bookends, they're literally the bookends of the book. Like, yeah. the title is Less Than Zero. That's the first thing you read. Yeah. You're reading the book. And then the last thing you read is this last paragraph that's all about this song by X. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that, I feel like um, it's really, uh, like, understanding that is really significant to understanding the meaning of the book. Um, I think this is another one that's worth, another song. It's also a very good song. Uh, I think it's one that's very worth listening to. Okay, yeah, let's I'll play it right now. I'm not sure if I'm going to seamlessly edit this into the Less Than Zero episode. If I don't, I'm just going to say right now, um, we had some technical issues our first time through recording our Less Than Zero episode, um, and we kind of lost a couple of the sort of like strong thesis statements that Sean was building toward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so we're re-recording a little bit off, after the fact to 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 get them them great points back in here. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so Sean, um, one of the things I remember that you said last time that was really interesting was about um, sort of like a sense of betrayal of like of um, Brett or Clay, um, but presumably Brett, um, that he feels kind of like the punk scene in LA at the time had like let him down a bad path that kind of like the underlying thesis of the book maybe uh, is like that these punk bands kind of created an environment where like it's, it's not, it's not acceptable to care about anything. Um, and, and that like cre- created the, these situations where things happen like, like clay seeing a, a sexual assault and not being able to intervene do you, remember, do you remember what you said about that? I'm not saying it as well as you did. Right, yeah. Well, and I think, I, I mean, basically, I felt like he was saying that, like, in a way, like, arts and uh, music, like rock and roll, you think of it like rebelling against the older generation, like puncturing hypocrisy, um, like offering some, trying to offer some better path for a person to, take you know like like something hopeful in a way and like these punk rock bands have like struck this completely nihilistic 
uh, pose and were like basically, um, particularly I, you know, they, I'd read interviews about the band Fear uh, and how like they were getting a real strong uh, Nazi skinhead following and that they're like, uh, they were heading down this path where like, they're like, whatever, it's all just a big, you know, it's all just a big fuck off or whatever, you know, like, you, like uh, yeah, we'll sing about like, uh, you know, we'll ironically sing about uh, murdering children and like, and raping women and like just doing whatever, like being, being fascists and Nazis or whatever, like whatever, you know, like there are no lines that cannot be crossed. And if you, um, if you feel like there are, then you're the problem because you're just a stupid wanker or whatever, you know? And it's like, and so for like a young person, like who is, uh, you know, coming up in that environment, um, you know, when you're looking to the young, cool, cutting edge artists for pointing the way, they're telling you like, whatever, none of it matters. And then like, Throughout the book, you see all these older characters. Um, like I, I, I kind of one thing I liked was when Clay's dad took him to uh, lunch, and like he was like, you know, I was being cool to him, and I wasn't even mad at him for like, uh, you know, putting the top down on his convertible and playing Bob Seger, and seeming to think that that was somehow a connection between us, and like you know like there's i think it was kim's dad is a producer and they're asking her about all these sexy Bla young blair's women. dad is a producer but kim's dad might also be a producer i'm not sure oh right oh, i think blair's, blair's dad, dad blair's dad's the one yeah blair's dad has the boyfriend and i think blair's dad's friends are the, the ones the who are like hitting on kim i think right so blair's dad has that boyfriend um who appears uh, several times throughout the book. Um, I feel like I can't remember name. either. Um, it escaped me yeah, at the me moment, too. but um, he, in the end, he's uh, uh, hanging the, Blair's dad's boyfriend. who's very young. He's like, he seems to be right around the age of play and, and the rest of them. And Blair, uh, he's like uh, hanging out with, um, um what's the uh drug dealer's name who sends julian to the uh his right tricks or um, whatever. um i can't remember so they're all like it's all just like the popular culture is grooming these young people just to be grist um for this like mill that wants to like consume young people and like suck their vitality out I think that was kind of um, where where Clay was coming from is he didn't feel that he had any basis for like objecting to anything, whatever people were doing, you know, like he finally like he sees something that's shocking enough that he feels like he has to say something but it's like weak <laughs> he's a, he can only give the very weakest pushback yeah. 
Um, and then he, and then he's the one who feels ashamed afterwards. Like everybody else is all like, why are you being such a stiff and such a dick? You know, <laughs> like, yeah. And I can identify um, with feeling that way. Like, I think I was more emotionally mature than Clay and grew out of it by the time I was Clay's age. But like in middle school, I can kind of remember it being like, like, it is not really okay to be like earnestly <laughs> invested in anything. Like I, like I was in middle yeah. school on 9-11 and I remember a lot of the boys I went to school with being like, oh, that explosion is so cool. Because it was just like, not yeah. we were just like not in a headspace where you could be earnest about anything um so it's it's right. relatable like that is the kind of position you can find yourself in and it's so interesting by the way i looked it up the um the drug dealer's name is finn um it's so interesting like your reading of this book as being like kind of kind of like an indictment of a culture that is like there are no lines that can't be crossed and like everything is fair game and also an indictment of a culture that's kind of like just like churning out young people to be like sexually exploited by older people because I feel like I don't know how he felt in 1985, but I feel like current day Brett is very strongly like you should be able to say whatever you want. There are no lines that shouldn't be crossed and is also very frequently and explicitly like all, all these all these young people who are saying that like older people put them in uncomfortable positions and they felt like they were sexually harassed or they were they were like pressured into doing things or they were groped like boohoo that's just what Hollywood is and so it's very it's it's weird <laughs> it's weird because he seems like the opposite well he seems like a man with the opposite stance of kind of like the stance that you're reading into the book. Well, I don't, I, I, he, I feel like he is somebody who is like, he was identifying what he saw as the excesses of the time. And those were very different times. Um, people like, like well off businessmen had carte blanche to treat everybody however they wanted and there was no consequences that was just like there was a conspiracy of absolute silence um women were frozen out of most of the positions of real power and like you know gay people were utterly mistreated um just everything it was very different times i feel like he feels like uh when he's talking about like snowflakes or whatever i feel like he is like, you know, the the like abuses that I was identifying back then were real. You guys, this, what you guys are talking about is nothing. It's child's play. Yeah, yeah I can see You know that. what I mean? Like he feels like the pendulum. He, I think he's more like feels like the pendulum is yeah. swung the That's other way. Point. And it's like, you know, it's one, and it's one of those things where I think people just, especially as we get older and uh, our brains become slightly more rigid, you get on a hobby horse and you know, it's like hard to like back off, <laughs> you know, like I, I feel like he's like got some legitimate points, but he's like just too, he's too like caught up in like attacking the things that he's identified as, as uh, <laughs> yeah. being wrong. And he's not able to like pull back and be all like, okay, well, yeah, on the other hand, this and that. But I do hear him saying, like, you know, like, he's like, um, 
you know, somebody grabbing somebody's butt at a party. So what, but he's like, you know, stuff about, and like people, even people like doing like this quid pro quo for sex thing. So what, you know, but then he's like, he's like, of course that's, I'm, that's very different than like, you know, rape allegations or he's, and he's like, and blacklisting is not cool. And like, so he's like, there's lines, but he feels like there's. But have you heard him say those things in like a, in anything other than a like very quick, like, look, 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 I'm not saying rape is, I'm not saying rape is okay. Like, I feel like I only hear him say it in that kind of tone. Like, I'm not a monster, but, but like, he doesn't actually give a shit. No, I think, no, but he like identifies, he's all like, he's all like, uh, you know, Harvey Weinstein is somebody who needed, like, there's, he's like, there's people who were like genuinely identified who needed their, this comeuppance, but then like somebody like Louis C.K. It's all overblown. That's mm-hmm. where, you know, he's all like, you know, constantly asking women if you can masturbate in front of them. Not cool, but like not that big a <laughs> deal. Uh, like, like being extremely coercive and even like getting physically coercive. Like Weinstein is is a whole other thing. And he's like always talking. You remember when Matt Damon, like, sort of put his foot. In I his remember mouth that happening, but I don't remember what he was, he was talking like, about. Was he talking about Weinstein? So Matt. Well, he was just talking about Matt like the Damon whole. Go like, ahead, tell me what he was talking about. I don't remember the whole thing. I mean, Matt, Matt Damon basically said, "Well, we've got to be able to like, um, we have to, you know, with this, all the Me Too and everything." We've got to be able to differentiate between people who kind of acted like dicks a little bit and people who were raping and that stuff. You know, we can't all, we can't just be all like, okay, you know, you're me too as well. You know, that was, that was what he said. Like, we just have to, you know, we can't lose sight of like, we can't lose perspective on who the really bad guys are and who the guys are who should be a little bit ashamed of themselves, but aren't like, you know, it's not like they need to be like shunned and drummed out of society mm. or whatever that and which then, is not and then a great he like, point like people <laughs> fell on him but what but it but but like it's it's not a great point it's not it's horribly not like, offensive it's not like <laughs> right it's not a shocking and terrible <laughs> yeah. thing to say and he like and like he got dr- jumped on like he had just said something super offensive uh-huh. and horrible you know and like and so it's like i mean i i get it but it's like the fact is, it's just like whatever political perspective you're coming from in the public square, on on Twitter, in news shows, everything else, like nothing is discussed with nuance and nothing's discussed intelligently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like there are, pe- there are people having intelligent discussions here and there, but they're quickly like, they're like just lost in the ocean of like, really dumb takes and knee-jerk reactions and and not very good thinking but like i I don't feel like i do i i i hate to say it um because i admire his writing and artistry but i don't feel like brett is really elevating the discussion very much with a lot of his takes. <laughs> he for sure is not <laughs> yeah i'm i am very curious to see what he said what what's in his book that that new book mm, coming out mm-hmm. white I'm curious to see it, but like I'm curious I too. I'm oh, but I'm full of dread. <laughs> I think I think it's yeah. gonna make me mad. Did you know? Did you know that white? The original title of white was white privileged male. 
So that gives you some yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah. Um. But, but, you know, like, there's, it, like, uh, one of my favorite plays and movies is Glengarry Glen Ross. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's just like, uh, it, it just feels so insightful. And, like, it's such a brilliant sort of analysis of, like, the way um, people get like sort of mangled by <laughs> by um, like a lot of uh, capitalist imperatives or whatever you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's like um, you know when you listen to uh, listen to the author. <laughs> talking the playwright talking um uh why is his name escaping me right now uh, i knew i was off game tonight. i'm like so tired. oh my god why are you doing this to me why can't i remember his name now why do i want to call him tony kushner that's not his name <laughs> no 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 uh, uh, it, it, come on he's so famous his daughter was on girls yeah I <laughs> god damn it yeah god damn it um okay her name I is just... zosha mamet david mamet <laughs> David Mamet, yes. I'm a true millennial I, because well, I had to get yes. to David Mamet by remembering Zosha Mamet's name first. <laughs> <laughs> so D- David Mamet, like I've listened to him like being interviewed, like he's very conservative. Yeah, he now. sucks. <laughs> he's a piece of shit. And he's all like, and he's all like, oh, you know, uh, you know, uh, talking about these conservative pundits. He was like, oh, they're great. Oh, he's really smart and stuff like that. And they, they're just idiots who are like, and it's like. I don't know. I feel like, I feel like, I don't understand. Um, I don't understand how somebody who can write things as brilliant as he's written can, like, have such dumb opinions about things sometimes. But yeah. Um. But it's like, but I also feel like people are sort of, you know, there may. I think there's certain specific things people like object to in liberal culture or they're not into this or that and but people feel like they got to choose sides they got to have allies so then they like say a bunch of dumb crap so they can if they don't feel like they can fit in anymore with the sort of like uh liberal orthodoxy or whatever it's like oh you know well you know i can write whatever kind of plays i want do whatever i want and as long as like I go on and just kiss the butt of like Sean Hannity <laughs> or uh, Ben Shapiro, and like you know, then then like uh, they don't care what kind of work I do. There, nobody's going to come to me and be all like, "Oh, that doesn't fit with our conservative orthodoxy," because <laughs> like they don't really pay that much attention anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I guess one thing I'm grateful for is that Brett hasn't embraced or been embraced by the Republican establishment. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, thank, thank God for small blessings. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. If I were to, if he, if he were to ask for my advice on anything, I'd just be like, "Don't go down that Dennis Miller or <laughs> yeah. David Mamet road." You know, it'd be all like, "Okay, I'm a real conservative." <laughs> right? you know, like, yeah. Like, like, you know, embrace your isolation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, if, His... if, if you can't, if you can't, like, if you can't. uh play nice with the liberals that you know at least don't be out like well then i'm joining the other team (laughs) (laughs) his um 
his kind of like political following, like the the people who follow him, I feel like their political uh, alignment tends to be kind of like fight club libertarians, <laughs> like Ayn, yes, Ayn Rand yeah. readers. <laughs> uh, right. The people, or like the people who love him like uncritically. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. He reminds me a lot of the South Park guys, or at least I don't keep up with South Park anymore. And somebody told me, somebody told me on a, future episode that was already recorded uh that they're that they're not they're not as shitty now um but at least the the classic south park like that they're a lot like brett because they're kind of um uh like against uh, like social niceties and are like any you can say anything no boundaries but like also against like change and they're like extremes, like both extremes are bad. Like the only thing that's good is like maintaining status quo. Uh, but yeah, Brett's uh, honestly, I feel like Brett ultimately like doesn't care about a lot of things and that's why his <laughs> politics are bad. I feel like for the most part, Brett thinks about Brett and his most of his concerns are, you know, how does this affect me? How are people thinking of me? Yeah. Um, well, I get the sense that he, I honestly get the sense that he's maybe even slightly annoyed that he's gay. Like, annoyed that he's gay? I can see, I can yeah. see that. Like, the, the, like, it's not aesthetically the choice he would have made for himself. It's not like, yeah. it's not where he would like to live <laughs> along. Yeah, I think so he's too. Like, he's like, if I am what I am, you know, but like, I'm not thrilled about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, yeah, he didn't, not self hating gay, but like, but like, more like, just a little disappointed. In uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it makes him seem like, like maybe more of a, more of a snowflake than he would like to be identified as. He's, he's like, just, right. just because I'm gay doesn't mean I align myself with identity politics. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I that might maybe that's part of why he didn't come out for such a long time. Like he was for years he well, for years and years and years he was like I don't know and then he came out in like 2012. Well, you know, but I think he was very um that's a, a, I I thought that like Less Than Zero was a very brave book. Um yeah. You know, for so. say right at his age cuz he like invited like everything he did in the book, every, the whole way he set the book up, he just absolutely invited people to like be like, "Oh, this is just you." Yeah, and he and named his character play. after him. Yeah, Clay's <laughs> last name is Easton. <laughs> yeah, so he aggressively yeah. invited it. Right, and like, and like, he, it was a character who had all these problems that were not attractive in terms of like his inability to like stand up to really horrible things mm -hmm. and it was a character who was like sort of like ambivalent about his sexuality and like and like having same-sex relations and stuff like that at a time when like people weren't um openly embracing that at all yeah in the early 80s like all the all, there was all these great musicians and they were like very openly like when you look at them performing and everything, it's like like Boy George, for instance. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you're very openly like gay or whatever, but they like weren't. They wouldn't acknowledge or admit to being gay. Like, yeah, like uh, the guys from Duran Duran, mm -hmm. all all these guys, Freddie were, Mercury, like, or or <laughs> yes, Freddie Mercury. Yeah, they were like 
they were sort of openly gay, like openly, it was an open secret right. that they were gay, but it was a secret still. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they rem- wouldn't acknowledge it and they didn't write songs about it. Yeah. About being gay or anything. Like, um, I remember you telling me about some guys that I think maybe you went to high school with who were talk like talked about Boy George and like the way they talked about him was like, oh, he's just gotta be gay. You know he's gay. But that was, yeah. I think that was more like when I was in junior high, but it was okay, like, yeah. that guy's gotta be gay. <laughs> it's so funny. It's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he is. Like, how was that ever like <laughs> gossip? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's so funny. And yeah, when you go it well, is and like and even at that time they're still like, oh, it's you know, it's like Liberace's People are like, he's got to be. Right. Absolutely. There's just no way he's not, you know. Yeah. People from the past are hilarious in that way. That's the, yeah. that's the light. That's the lighter side of the homophobia that permeated the past. Just people's like right. disbelief. Absolute obtuse. <laughs> yeah. It's so weird when you go back and watch movies from the 80s, um, like how casually people throw around homophobic slurs. Like oh, yeah. it's just Absolutely. everywhere in like PG movies movies and just like casually coming out of the mouths of characters that you're supposed to like it's just like it's oh, yeah. not a big deal yeah if you got it like i mean when i was a young man mm-hmm. if you were like in a confrontation with other young males like homophobic slurs were just like that was the go-to know, <laughs> the reverse, you know yeah. it's just like you you like yeah you you absolutely are going to like throw homophobic slurs at somebody right as like that's your you know that's where your starting point is yeah. it's like somebody somebody like does something you don't like and you'd be like you know right whatever you, you, you drop the f-bomb on them you know right <laughs> so well i i noticed that like there is a very specific sort of time stamp on uh less than zero mm-hmm. like it seems to uh be set um between um, December eighteenth, nineteen eighty two, and like, what was the date? I I had it figured out. I think it was like January fifteenth, uh, ni- nineteen eighty three, uh, is when it ended. Like, there's like specific dates, like it's specific points. He says, okay, well, it's it's Friday. You know, I get home, and then like, um, I've been home a week, and uh, or I've been home six days, and it's it's a Saturday, and it's Christmas Eve, and it's like, oh, okay, well, and then like I'm saying, okay, so I went back and checked the calendar for that year, and it all matched up, like the Sundays and everything, <laughs> and it was all like, wow. it was there for four weeks, <laughs> and it was like, so it seemed to be like that then, and like there were certain songs that things referred to, that, and like there was the bootleg uh, movie for uh, Temple of Doom they were watching, which Temple of Doom oh, yeah. came out spring of '83. Mm-hmm. And like the guy had paid several hundred dollars for this bootleg, so it's like, well, he wouldn't pay several hundred dollars for a bootleg of a movie that had already been released. So, oh yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense that he got it, you know. (laughs) So anyway, it was like pretty clear that that was when it was set. But then it's got like a weird kind of almost double timestamp, where like really that's so like, and when I was researching later, I was like, oh, he was writing exact. That's exactly the time he was writing this. He was home, it was over Christmas break, and he was writing this at that exact time. But like when they're start when they're talking about like hits, certain things that are hits on the radio at the time by the go-go's and stuff like that, 
they actually seem really to be referring to the winter before that. Like, so it feels like the book has mm. its heart one year early, and the and Clay is one year younger than Brett Easton Ellis, the way it's set up. Um, because uh, he had he was just coming back from his uh, first semester in school, and and uh, in this eighty two eighty three period, but Ellis had started college one year earlier than that. And I feel like there's like this weird mm-hmm. double timestamp where like so many of the things that they're talking about as being like the hits and significant and stuff like that are more like one year earlier. Um, but then there's things that make it clear <laughs> that like, you know, on some on some level in reality, it's set in this 83 to or 82 to 83. But <laughs> but its heart is more like in 81 <laughs> to 82. Huh. Do you think, do you feel like there's a significance to that? Or that's just like a consequence of kind of writing multiple drafts across uh, no, but different I feel years? Like it was, I do think it is a consequence of like working this out over the course of more than one year. But I also do feel like it does show that he is writing um, about what, I guess he's writing, he's writing about right now, you know, for him. <laughs> you know, it's mm. a very immediate thing for him. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's so interesting, like how how current it was and how like enmeshed in like that time it was. Because like reading it now, it's just like, oh yeah, you know, it's old stuff. <laughs> it's stuff from yeah. before I was born. Um, but it's hard. It's hard to imagine like a novel if a novel came out today that was like so about this moment. Like these are the songs that are on the radio, and these are the songs that like the underground local right. bands are playing. Like. That's that's just like I don't feel like that. I don't feel like writers do that yeah. very often. <laughs> and like, why would they? Like in general, you you kind of want a slightly more timeless yeah. appeal. But like, it is a really interesting choice that he like so aggressively grounds it in like a very specific well, I, moment. I heard him say something interesting about that the other day on a podcast, um, where he was saying that, uh, you know, like when he wrote Less Than Zero that was a time when people used to write these novels and they'd be almost like letters from the front. They're like news about what's going on. And he's like, now people, they want to know what's going on and they just go on the internet and they find out what's going on. Like a novel can't serve that function anymore to be all like, Oh, you know, like what are kids listening to and what are they doing? It's like, Oh, you just go on the internet and find out. But you didn't, right. there was no way. Right. Of this novel, this yeah. novel was better. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> I thought that was an interesting observation. I think it's good to get into a little bit of uh, criticism of the book because, yeah, like all I've been talking about is all the stuff that I like the book, <laughs> but like it's definitely like, I mean, it's an amazing accomplishment for uh, like a twenty-year-old guys who have written this book yeah mature um uh restrained um artful but there are some things that like you know even given the full benefit of the doubt i'm like okay that's not perfect yeah it's like then then maybe a slightly older person or more mature person would have like um uh found a more artful way to do that like with the uh 
the whole like TV evangelist televangelist thing mm-hmm. like felt kind of trite and, and yeah, like you could have found a more interesting way to like introduce what he was trying to put in there. Um, the some of the like you know after he sees Julian go through all that stuff and they go to the club and they're playing Painted Love. It's like, all right, well, <laughs> or, uh, um, like, uh, when he's all like, I don't, it's like, it's, it was Christmas morning and I was high on Coke. It's like, uh, that's a kind of hand handed juxtaposition right there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, there were times when he, like, I, I mean, I definitely think like what's good about the book outweighs what's poor about the book, but you can find things that I think are genuine like flaws about how it was written yeah um without too much trouble (laughs) (laughs) um I feel like my big honestly my biggest criticism of this book um that I think is maybe going to be a recurring theme uh in my criticisms of Brett is that it just should be as short as it is I think it should be significantly shorter (laughs) I think this should be like a tight novella, like maybe a hundred pages. <laughs> Cause really I, I feel, and maybe honestly, maybe going back and reading it with this, through this kind of like antifall <laughs> lens um, with some of this backstory you provided me might change how I feel about the kind of like lulls and slow buildup of the story. But I feel like the, the beginning kind of like two thirds of the book kind of vacillates between like sort of um, monotonous in a kind of like hypnotic enthralling way and like monotonous in a like just genuinely monotonous way. Um, And I I think the sort of like enthralling monotony is something that Brett got better at kind of sustaining as he matured as a writer. Um, But I feel like in this one, I can I can feel parts where I'm just like, I just don't need to hear this conversation. Like, it just doesn't need to be here. And I and I really feel like the book doesn't doesn't really start cooking with gas until like shit starts going really bad like the I feel like the snuff film is kind of where it kicks into gear and then it's like the the sensational horrible scenes are what truly work for me in this book and the kind of more quiet slice of life stuff is sort of for the most part feels pretty disposable to me I I partly agree with you I think like the monotonous slow build up were really like makes those horrific scenes at the end um, just much more meaningful and and more horrible Mm -hmm. than they would be if they were gotten to a lot more quickly. But I do think, like, I do think that there was some lab in the writing, you know, like, uh, like, you know, when Julian's talking about the Tom Petty song, Straight Into Darkness, eh, that's a little on the nose, you know, like maybe, um, and, uh, uh, some of the passages, like I could have done with maybe a little less of the, uh, flashbacks about the grandparents. Yeah. I was just going to say that. I feel like those add very little. Like I felt like this, you know, in fact, I think like, I think I, I wouldn't want to lose too much of his conversations like with his friends at Spago and all those things. Uh-huh. 
those things really worked for me big time. And like they got me in a like this feeling of like of just being at one of those points in my life where I'm like young and hanging out and partying a lot and like I almost I almost had like sort of a residual feeling. Of, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like yeah. a contact high up <laughs> maybe I'm reading these scene descriptions. Yeah. Maybe um Maybe it's it's resonating with you as a member of Generation X or just because of because of the life you've lived. Like maybe that's why it works for you. Like you're bringing something to it from the outside that I'm not for whatever reason. Like maybe that's what it is. Yeah, I definitely I definitely wouldn't say, oh, this is a like a perfectly written book. Yeah. Um, it's a. Uh, it's not that. It's like. <laughs> But it's, but it's, uh, I still think it's an excellent book. Um, You're right. And I would recommend it to uh, friends who I know to be like um, of uh, sort of uh, the sort of timber that allows them to. Uh, read things that are shocking and offensive and, and, and like recognize them for what they are. <laughs> and, uh-huh. also, and also like, you know, of d- discerning literary taste and whatever. Uh-huh. Um, but like, it, it's definitely not one I would just like go around willy nilly recommending. <laughs> yeah. <to everybody. laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think that that dovetails nicely. Uh, with, we can, we can move into rating this book. Um, so, uh, I'm going to have each of my guests as we discuss Brett's works, we're going to rate it. We're going to rate the book on a scale of one to five and it can be one to five, whatever's you can pull the scale from, (laughs) from the content of the book. So I'm going to rate less than zero. I will say, uh, I'm full disclosure. I'm recording these episodes out of order. Um, and I've, so I've already done a couple ratings at this point and I'm realizing that the, the scale of one to five system maybe (laughs) oversimplifies a little bit because my feelings towards Brett and his works tend to be so like contradictory and (laughs) multi-layered. So, um, uh, I've I wa- I went into this conversation expecting to give this book three out of five um, Elvis Costello posters, um, but I do feel like talking to you, Sean, about the book and you bringing in this uh, a level of like outside knowledge and um, analysis has really like given me more respect for the book that I had lost uh, upon this reread of it. And um, I'm going to bump it up just slightly to 3.5 Elvis Costello posters pending a reread. But I'm probably eventually I'm going to reread it and kind of do a little bit more of the compile it with the soundtrack that that it goes with and and keep this sort of like these themes in mind because that really that really makes it a more interesting book than I think I ever really gave it credit for um so yeah I'm gonna have to read it again but for now I'm gonna give it 3.5 Elvis Costello posters nice yeah I yeah well speaking of 
like the the music like uh if a faithful rendition of this uh of this book is a movie could have a, a, a truly awesome soundtrack yeah um, you know there was there was supposed to be a hulu an upcoming hulu series based on uh, less than zero and it just got announced like Like this has been I've been hearing about this for months, maybe even a year. And it just got announced like a couple weeks ago that Hulu's not picking up the pilot. It's not going forward. Yeah, Yeah, I've heard. I'm so disappointed. I was so excited. Yeah. Yeah. But I think this is ripe for a reboot, especially especially since it's about Nazis. (laughs) Like, come on. (laughs) What could be more appropriate? Yeah, exactly. I think, and I think that's a, I, I really think that a lot of this stuff, because I like, when I started seeing these things, I started like Googling these terms to see if like these things I was finding in it had been like really discussed much, and they haven't. Like, yeah, no, I've it never. It seems to be a, a very overlooked <laughs> aspect of the book. Yeah, I've done a lot of reading about it, like reading criticism of it and reading like Brett interviews, and I've literally never heard this take on it. Yeah, and I don't think Brett, like, I, yeah, I've listened to like Brett. Yeah. Uh, one of those podcasts I listened to today was talking to uh, uh, Andrew McCarthy. Yeah. Kind of an interesting conversation. Like, Andrew McCarthy was a much more interesting guy than I would have expected. Yeah, uh, I agree. <laughs> but, uh, but, like, yeah, he was talking, he kind of spoke at length about Less Than Zero, and he didn't really go into much about yeah. that either. But, yeah. like, but, you know, Brett's Brett's very coy. And I th- you know and the things that Brett says about his work, I think, are very much like inter- in response to the things that other people say about them. And right. I th- I think if if like if it being about a certain thing didn't come across to the critics who read it and the public that read it, I don't think he would necessarily lower himself to being like you guys misread it. I think he would be embarrassed that it didn't come across. But also, I think this strikes me as a book that like is written. Like, there's books that are written, like, with the conscious mind, and there's books that are written with the subconscious mind, in my opinion. Yeah, that's another thing I was thinking of. Like, I wonder how much of this is conscious. I like the subconscious mind books better, and I (laughs) I feel like this is, a lot of this is a subconscious mind at work. That's very possible, yeah. That makes sense. And I don't think authors, like, necessarily, I know even from my own personal experience, a lot of times, you don't even... He, he may not have been able to, like, formulate these arguments he's making with his story consciously at that point. Yeah. He may not have even fully had the language to do it. Yeah. Or, or like, the, the ability to conceptualize it fully. But, like, I think that the, the more subconscious mind that synthesizes things creates stories that later can be interpreted. And, like, the author isn't necessarily always going to have like the full interpretation of his work yeah when right after he does his work (laughs) yeah that's very true that's something that both i'm i'm a writer not a published one but (laughs) i write that's something that i've experienced in my work uh multiple times uh like i'll i'll complete something and then i'll have people read it and and be like oh it's clearly about that like it's clearly a metaphor for this or whatever based on x y and z and i'll be like oh yeah that's like that's not just clear, that's like really obvious, but it was yeah. not my thought process at all. Right. Because you're but not, it's undeniably in the text. Because that, that part of your brain that like interacts with people and analyzes things is not the most, is not the more powerful and definitely not the more creative part of your intelligence. Yeah. 
it's the part that dreams and that you don't really understand and you can't even remember. <laughs> that that's the that's the part where the real creative creativity bubbles up from. So yeah, I think so. Yeah, like, but I would give the the book four stars. All right. Uh, I I like tempted. I I got so much pleasure out of like, <laughs> you know, I love a book that like a, that rewards a careful reading. Yeah. And that, like, you're really very good at a careful reading. I knew it was good. I knew it was a good idea to have you on this podcast. You're the most careful reader I know. <laughs> I, I, love, I, I love a book that rewards a, a extra or a poem, anything or anything that like when you like think deeper and harder and look closely, yeah, you find hidden images and ideas. Like I love that, and like I had so much joy out of digging into this book that like it's tempting to give it five stars but like i just i can't overlook i can't overlook all that you know the Mm -hmm. flaws that are there yeah um but yeah it's a uh, i'd give it four easily because it's a it's an enjoyable read uh yeah like it's at least over half of the book um has a real uh a real mesmerizing hypnotic poetic quality to it. Yeah. It's just like that rivals anything I've read, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's on it is uneven. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would, I would say, I think about almost exactly half of the book has that. <laughs> That's why I want it to be, it's a 200 page novel. That's why I want it to be a hundred page novella, but yeah. we can't always get what we want. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, Sean, this was great. I'm, I'm you really nailed it. Uh, you're my favorite literary detective, um, and you've given me a lot to think about in regards to this book. Yeah, I wasn't even sure when I right after I, the moment I finished the book, I wasn't sure I was going to have that much to say. <laughs> That's why I like started going back and listing all. I was like, well, it was a little distracting. All the constant cultural references. <laughs> wow. And that just led you down the rabbit hole. <laughs> Very cool. Um, all right. So uh, I'd like to now give my listeners an opportunity to balance out their literary diet. Um, every episode, I recommend a book that is not by a white man. And I ask my guests to also recommend a book that can be by whoever they wish. Um, and so my recommendation for this episode to to balance out the doom and gloom and nihilism of uh of less than zero i'm gonna recommend the book big magic by elizabeth gilbert she's one of my favorite writers she's right up there with brett um and she couldn't she couldn't be more different from him she's best known for writing um eat pray love which i think is a wildly underrated book um big magic is her her book on uh, on creativity uh, uh like giving yourself permission to be creative and sort of the idea of where ideas come from and how you can live a creative life. It's one of the most, she, she borders on, she, she constantly, she border, she borders on being something that would turn me off and disgust me, but she is that so genuinely and full, full heartedly and, and cleverly that I can't, I can't resent her for it. Like she'll, she, she truly believes in, in magic and believes that 
ideas are living beings and she talks about like you know her place in the universe and she's like very spiritual and uh they, these are all not these are not my kind of thing <laughs> um but she just is, is such an undeniable talent and such a charming voice and so funny and so smart that she makes me want to be less cynical just as f- she pulls me as forcefully in the direction of being less cynical as Brett pulls me in the other direction of being more cynical. So I think that Big Magic is a perfect complement to the uh, to the works of Brett Easton Ellis. Um, highly recommend it. This is my like go to recommendation. If I need to recommend somebody a book and I don't know anything about them, I recommend this book to everybody. Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. Sean. Well, yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I'll have to give her a shot. Like she's great. The, the previews of the, the, my full exposure to her is basically, um, well, I heard a little, I, I think she's been a guest of Judge John yes. Hodgman. And I've heard her on. That was my, podcast. that was my first introduction to her. That was but, where uh, I fell in love with her. <laughs> my main exposure to her work was like the trailer for the movie with Julia Roberts. Oh and yeah. That yeah. was like, yeah, yeah, for me, so I <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> you know that movie was directed by Ryan Murphy of Glee, so we gotta oh, really? we gotta not take that too seriously. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen the film? No, I haven't. I hate Ryan Murphy with my whole heart, and I don't. Oh, okay. I, yeah, I and I don't want to taint very it. Very unappealing to me, and like kind <laughs> of like, um, yeah. Yeah, and I think a lot of the sort of reflexive disdain for Elizabeth Gilbert is like disdain for the film Eat, Pray, Love. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's. Okay. So, yeah. Interesting recommendation. I'll have to. Yeah. I'll have to give that a check out. Yeah. All right. So, I will go with a non male author also. Um, and it's uh, Carson McCullers. Ah. Uh, I love her writing. Uh, I, I think she's interesting. She's also a prodigy. Um, like Brett Easton Ellis. Uh, she. Um, is the author of The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, uh, which is a great book. It's not my favorite of hers, um, but it's her first book. And uh, I'm just trying to look up. She was very young when she published that. Um, read sort of. She had sort of a short, tragic life. Okay, 1940, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter was published. Uh, she was born in 1917, so she's about 23 when that was published. She... Uh, then in 1941, her second novel was published, Reflections in a Golden Eye. And then in 1946, my favorite novel of hers, The Member of the Wedding, which is a, it's kind of like a condensed short gem, a lot like uh, uh, there's some, in, in some ways it reminds me of, of uh, Less Than Zero. Um, it's about a, a girl, a young girl who's like... Um, I think it's her older sister is getting married, um, and uh, she's feeling like left out and outcast and everything. But it's kind of there's it's a it's a there's a lot of it's it's a dark novel in a lot of ways. And, and uh, McCullers led a very difficult life. Um, she was like she had like this rheumatic fever when she was 15 years old, and uh, she started having strokes over and over by the time she was 30 like the left side of her body was paralyzed um and like the last she she died at 50 but like uh most of her work was done in in the uh 30 basically the 40s um 
and then like nothing she published one novel like in 1961 um you know several years before she died uh but like she just had this like incredible burst of like just four brilliant beautiful novels in the 1940s uh or no i'm sorry she had three novels and then uh, a book of short stories uh the ballad of the sad cafe um but yeah my favorite if uh anyone is interested in getting into it, it's a short one when you're getting into a new author uh is the member of the wedding like just a brilliant beautiful uh book um and dark and i think probably for for brit (laughs) east and ellis fans that's probably an important characteristic it's it's a dark story um Yeah, you've been you've been suggesting Carson McCullers to me for a while, and I started reading The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, but I didn't finish it. I didn't get very far, but I liked it. And, and you just yeah, you really sell her. You really make me want to read her, but she just hasn't she just hasn't made it into my. I just haven't taken the leap yet, but I'm, I'm excited to read her. The Heart is a Lonely Hunter is a great book, and it's like an amazing achievement for a 23 year old woman. But the member of the wedding is is. Uh, just absolute perfection. All right. I'll check it out. Okay. Uh, Sean, you're unlike most podcast guests, you are not a performer or a, a professional creative of any type. Do you have anything that you would like to plug? <laughs> you're a lawyer. Would you like to plug your law, your law services? <laughs> yeah. If you're, uh, you know, uh, if you get in some kind of trouble in New York or <laughs> you got some kind of problem, uh, you know, uh, look me up, and uh, maybe I can provide you some legal services. <laughs> he's he's a he's a great lawyer. He's very very sympath- <laughs> he's very sympathetic. Really goes the extra mile. <laughs> uh, great. Okay, Sean. Thank you so much for being here. You were fantastic, uh, okay. and we will have you back. I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Uh, and I think somewhere down the road, we're gonna have to do a special, um, a special episode on the David Foster Wallace, Brett Easton Ellis feud. I can't imagine doing that with anyone but you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right, thank you so much for being here. Uh, oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, and I like to end every episode with one of Brett Easton Ellis's classic name drops. Brett is no longer uh, a particularly active on Twitter, but he had the heyday of tweeting a lot. And one of my favorite things about his his Twitter presence of yesteryear was the the just beautiful celebrity name drops that he constantly uh, was constantly providing us with. So here's a vintage Brett name drop from August 25th, 2010. Empire. Last night meeting Tarantino at the last exorcism premiere and talking about Pauline Kale, Norman Mailer, and Less Than Zero. Thank you guys so much. Uh, Please subscribe if you haven't already. Rate us on iTunes, comment, say nice things, and check out some of our other podcasts here on the uh, on the Major Cast Network. 